Chapter Sixteen of An American Politician. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Calm Dragon. An American Politician by F. Marion Crawford. Chapter Sixteen. Sybil was right when she said the family politics at the Wyndhams were disturbed. Indeed, the disturbance was so great that Mrs. Wyndham was dressed and downstairs before twelve o'clock, which had never before occurred in the memory of the oldest servant. "'It is too perfectly exciting, my dear,' she exclaimed as Joe and Sybil entered the room, followed at a respectable distance by Ronald. "'I can't stand it one minute longer. How do you do, Mr. Surbiton?' "'What is the latest news?' asked Sybil. "'I have not heard anything for ever so long. Sam has gone round to see. Perhaps he will be back soon.' I do wish we had tickers here in the house, as they do in New York. It is such fun watching when anything is going on. She walked about the room as she talked, touching a book on one table and a photograph on another, in a state of great excitement. Ronald watched her in some surprise. It seemed odd to him that anyone should take so much interest in a mere election. Joe and Sybil, who knew her better, made themselves at home. It appeared that although Sam had gone to make inquiries, it was very improbable that anything would be known until late in the afternoon. There was to be a contest of some sort, but whether it would end in a single day, or whether Ballymolloy and his men intended to prolong the struggle for their own ends, remained to be seen. Meanwhile Mrs. Wyndham walked about her drawing-room, discanting upon the iniquities of political life with an animation that delighted Joe and amused Ronald. "'Well, there is nothing for it, you see,' she said at last. "'Sam evidently does not mean to come home, "'and you must just stay here and have lunch until he does.' "'The three agreed, nothing to loathe to enjoying one another's company. "'There is nothing like a day spent together "'in waiting for an event to bring out the characteristics of individuals.' "'Mrs. Wyndham fretted and talked, and fretted again. "'Joe grew silent, pale, and anxious as the morning passed.' while Sybil and Ronald seemed to enjoy themselves extremely, and talked without ceasing. Outside the snow fell thick and fast as ever, and the drifts rose higher and higher. "'I do wish Sam would come back,' exclaimed Mrs. Wyndham at last, as she threw herself into an easy chair and looked at the clock. But Sam did not come, nevertheless, and Joe sat quietly by the fire, wishing she were alone, and yet unwilling to leave the house where she hoped to have the earliest information." The two who seemed rapidly growing indifferent to the issue of the election were Sybil and Ronald, who sat together with a huge portfolio of photographs and sketches between them, laughing and talking pleasantly enough. Joe did not hear a word of their conversation, and Mrs. Wyndham paid little attention to it, though her practical ears could have heard it all if need be, while she herself was profoundly occupied with someone else. The four had a somewhat dreary meal together, and Ronald was told to go into Sam's study and smoke if he liked, while Mrs. Wyndham led Joe and Sybil away to look at the quantity of new things that had just come from Paris. Ronald did as he was bid and settled himself for an hour, with a plentiful supply of newspapers and railroad literature. It was past three o'clock when Sam Wyndham entered the room, his face wet with snowflakes and red with excitement. "'Hello!' he exclaimed, seeing Ronald comfortably and constant in his favorite easy-chair. "'How are you?' "'Excuse me,' said Ronald, rising quickly. "'They told me to come in here after lunch, and so I was waiting until I was sent for, or told to come out.' "'Very glad to see you anyway,' said Sam cordially. 
Well, I have been to hear about an election. A friend of ours got put up for senator, but I don't expect that interests you much. On the contrary, said Ronald, I have heard it so much talked of that I am as much interested as anybody. Is it all over? Oh, yes, and a pretty queer business it was. Well, our friend is not elected anyway. Has Mr. Harrington been defeated? asked Ronald quickly. It is my belief he has been sold, said Sam. But as I am a Republican myself, and a friend of Jobbins, more or less, I don't suppose I feel so very bad about it, after all. But I don't know how my wife will take it, I'm sure, said Sam presently. I expect we had better go and tell her, right off. Then he has really lost the election, inquired Ronald, who was not altogether sorry to hear it. Why, yes, as I say, Jobbins is senator now. I should not wonder if Harrington were a good deal cut up. Come along with me now, and we will tell the ladies. The three ladies were in the drawing-room. Mrs. Wyndham and Joe sprang to their feet as Sam and Ronald entered, but Sybil remained seated and merely looked up inquiringly. Oh, now, Sam, cried Mrs. Wyndham, in great excitement, tell us all about it right away. We are dying to know. Joe came close to Mrs. Wyndham, her face very pale and her teeth clenched in her great anxiety. Sam threw back the lapels of his coat and put his thumbs in the armholes of his broad waistcoat and turned his head slightly on one side. Well, he said slowly, John's wiped out. Do you mean to say he's lost the election, cried Mrs. Wyndham? Yes, he's lost it. Jobbins is senator. Sam, you are perfectly horrid, exclaimed his spouse in deepest vexation. Josephine Thorne spoke no word, but turned away and went alone to the window. She was deathly pale, and she trembled from head to foot as she clutched the heavy curtain with her small white fingers. Poor Mr. Harrington, said Sybil thoughtfully. I am dreadfully sorry. Mr. and Mrs. Wyndham and Ronald moved toward the fire where Sybil was sitting. No one spoke for a few seconds. At last Mrs. Wyndham broke out. "'Sam, it's a perfect shame,' she said, "'and I think all those people ought to be locked up for bribery. "'I'm certain it was all done by some horrid stealing or something now. "'Was not it?' "'I don't know about that, my dear,' said Sam reflectively. "'You see, they generally vote fair enough in these things. "'Well, maybe that fellow Bollymalloy has made something of it. "'He's a pretty bad sort of a scamp, anyway, I expect. "'Sorry you are so put out about it. But Jobbins is not so very bad, after all. Sybil suddenly missed Joe from the group, and looked across to where she stood by the window. A glance told her that something was wrong, and she rose from her seat and went to her friend. The sight of Josephine's pale face frightened her. Joe, dear, she said affectionately, you are ill. Come to my room. Sybil put one arm around her waist and quietly led her away. Ronald had watched the little scene from a distance, but Mr. and Mrs. Wyndham continued to discuss the result of the election. "'It is exactly like you, Sam, to be talking in that way, instead of telling me just how it happened,' said Mrs. Wyndham, "'and then to say it is not so very bad after all. "'Oh, and I will tell you all about it right away, my dear, if you'll only give me a little time. "'You're always in such an immense fever about everything that it's perfectly impossible to get along.' "'Are you going to begin?' said Mrs. Wyndham, half vexed with her husband's deliberate indifference. "'Well, as near as I can make out, it was generally thought at the start that John had a pretty good show. The Senate elected him right away by a majority of four, which was so much to the good, for of course his friends reckoned on getting him in, if the Senate hadn't elected him, by the bigger majority of the House swamping the Senate in the general court. But it's gone just the other way.' 
"'Whatever is the general court?' asked Ronald, much puzzled. "'Oh, the general court is when the House and Senate meet together next day "'to formally declare a senator elected, if they have both chosen the same man, "'or to elect one by a general majority if they haven't.' "'Yes, that is it,' added Mrs. Wyndham to Ronald, and then addressing her husband. "'Do go on, Sam. You've not told us anything yet.' "'Well, as I said, the Senate elected John Harrington by a majority of four. The House took a long time getting to work, and then there was some mistake about the first vote, so they had to take a second. And when that was done, Jobbins actually had a majority of eighteen, so John's beaten, and Jobbins will be senator anyhow, and you must just make the best you can out of it.' "'But I thought you said when the House and Senate did not agree the General Court met next day and elected a senator,' asked Ronald again. And in that case, Mr. Harrington is not really beaten yet. Well, theoretically, he's not, said Sam, because, of course, Jobbins is not actually senator until he has been elected by the general court. But the majority for him in the House was so surprisingly large, and the majority for John so small in the Senate, and the House is so much larger than the Senate, that the vote tomorrow is a dead sure thing, and Jobbins is just as much senator as if he were sitting in Washington. I suppose you will expect me to have Mr. Jobbins to dinner now. I think the whole business is perfectly mean. Don't blame me, my dear, said Sam calmly. I did not create the Massachusetts legislature, and I did not found the State House, nor discover America, nor any of these things. And after all, Jobbins is a very respectable man and belongs to our own party, while Harrington does not. When I set up creating, I'll make a note of one or two points, and I'll see that John is properly attended to. You need not be silly, Sam, said Mrs. Wyndham. What has become of those girls? They went out of the room some time ago, said Ronald, who had been listening with much amusement to the description of the election. He was never quite sure whether people could be serious when they talked such peculiar language, and he observed with surprise that Mr. and Mrs. Wyndham talked to each other in phrases very different from those that they used in addressing himself. Sybil had led Joe away to her room. She did not guess the cause of Joe's faintness, but supposed it to be a momentary indisposition, amendable to the effects of eau de cologne. She made her lie upon the great cretonne sofa, moistening her forehead and giving her a bottle of salts to smell. But Joe, who had never been ill in her life, recovered her strength in a few minutes, and regaining her feet began to walk about the room. "'What do you think it was, Joe, dear?' asked Sybil, watching her. "'Oh, it was nothing. Perhaps the room was hot, and I was tired.' "'I thought you looked tired all morning,' said Sybil. "'And just when I looked at you, I thought you were going to faint. You were as pale as death, and you seemed holding yourself up by the curtains.' "'Did I?' said Joe, trying to laugh. "'How silly of me. I felt faint for a moment. That was all.' I think I will go home. Yes, dear, but stay a few minutes longer and rest yourself. I will order a carriage, and it is still snowing hard. Sybil left the room. Once alone, Joe threw herself upon the sofa again. She would rather have died than have told anyone, even Sybil Brandon, that it was no sickness she felt, but only a great and overwhelming disappointment for the man she loved. Her love was doubly hers, her very own in that it was fast locked in her own heart, beyond the reach of any human being to know. Of all that came and went about her, and flattered her, and strove for her graces, not one suspected that she loved a man in their very midst, passionately, fervently, and with all the strength she had. 
Ronald's suspicions were too vague, and too much the result of a preconceived idea, to represent anything like a certainty to himself, and he had not mentioned them to her. If anything can determine the passion of love in a woman, it is the great flood of sympathy that overflows her heart when the man she loves is hurt, or overcome in a great cause, when, for a little moment, that which she thinks strongest and bravest and most manly is struck down and wounded and brought low, her love rises up and is strong within her, and makes her more noble in the devotion of perfect gentleness that a man can ever be. Oh, if only he could have won, Joe said again and again to herself, if only he could have won, I would have given anything. Sybil came back in a few moments and saw Joe lying down, still white and apparently far from well. She knelt upon the floor by her side, and taking her hands, looked affectionately into her face. "'There is something the matter,' she said. "'I know you cannot deceive me. There is something serious the matter. Will you tell me, Joe? Can I do anything at all to help you?' Joe smiled faintly, grateful for the sympathy and for the gentle words of her friend. "'No, Sybil, dear. It is nothing. There is nothing you can do. Thanks, dearest. I shall be very well in a little while.' It is nothing, really. Is the carriage there? A few minutes later, Joe and Ronald were again at Miss Schenectady's house. Joe recovered her self-control on the way, and asked Ronald to come in, an invitation which he cheerfully accepted. John Harrington had spent the day in a state of anxiety which was new to him. Enthusiastic by nature, he was calm by habit, and he was surprised to find his hand unsteady and his brain not capable of the intense application he could usually command. Ten minutes after the results of the election were known at the State House, he received a note from a friend informing him with expressions of hearty sympathy how the day had gone. The strong physical sense of pain which accompanies all great disappointments took hold of him, and he fell back in his seat and closed his eyes, his teeth set and his face pale with the suffering, while his broad hands convulsively grasped the heavy oaken arms of his chair. It may be that this same bodily agony which is of itself but the gross reflection in our material cells of what the soul is bearing, is a wholesome provision that draws our finer senses away from looking at what might blind them altogether. There are times when a man would go mad if his mind were not detached from its sorrow by the quick, sharp beating of his bodily heart, and by the keen torture of the physical body, that is like the thrusting of a red-hot knife between breastbone and midriff. The expression self-control is daily in the blatant mouths of preachers and moralists, the very cant of emptiness and folly. It means nothing, nor can any play of words or cunning twisting of conception ever give it meaning, for the self is the divine, imperishable portion of the eternal God which is in man. I may control my limbs and the strength that is in them, and I may force under the appendities and passions of this mortal body but I cannot myself, for it is myself that controls, being of nature godlike and stronger than all which is material. And although, for an infinitely brief space of time, I myself may inhabit and give life to this handful of most changeable atoms, I have it in my supreme power and choice to make them act accordingly to my pleasure. If I become enamored of the body and its ways, and of the subtleties of a fleeting bodily intelligence, I have forgotten to control those things, and having forgotten that I have free will given me from heaven to rule what is mine, I am no longer a man, but a beast. But while I am, who am an immortal soul, 
command the perishable engine in which I dwell. I am in truth a man, for the soul is of God and forever. Whereas the body is a thing of today that vanishes into dust tomorrow, but the two together are the living man, and thus it is that God is made man in us every day. All that which we know by our senses is but an illusion. What is true of its own nature we can neither see, nor hear, nor feel, nor taste. It is a matter of time, and nothing more, and whatever palpable thing a man can name will inevitably be dissolved into its constituent parts, that these may again agglomerate into a new illusion for future ages. But that which is subject to no change, nor disintegration, nor reconstitution, is the immortal truth to attain a knowledge and understanding of which it is to be saved from the endless shifting of the material and illusionary universe. John Harrington lay in his chair alone in his rooms, while the snow whirled against the windows outside and made little drifts on the sills. The fire had gone out, and a bitter storm beat against the casements and howled in the chimney, and the dusk of the night began to mingle with the thick white flakes and brought upon the solitary man a great gloom and horror of loneliness. It seemed to him that his life was done, and his strength gone from him, and he had labored in vain for years for this end, and he had failed to attain it. It were better to have died than to suffer the ignominy of this defeat. It were better never to have lived at all than to have lived so utterly in vain. One by one the struggles of the past came up to him. Each had seemed to triumph when he was in the glory of strength and hope. The splendid aims of a higher and nobler government built by sheer truth and nobility of purpose upon the ashes and dust of present corruption. The magnificent purity of the ideal state of which he had loved to dream, all that he had thought of and striven after as most worthy of a true man to follow, dwindled now away into a hollow and mocking image, more false than hollowness itself, poorer and less of substance than a juggler's show. He clasped his hands over his forehead and tried to think, but it was of no use. Everything was vague, broken, crushed, and shapeless. Faces seemed to rise to his disturbed sight, and he wondered whether he had known these people. A ghastly weariness as of death was upon him, and his arms fell heavily by his sides. He groaned aloud, and if in that bitter sigh he could have breathed away his existence, he would have gladly done it. Someone entered the room, struck a match, and lit the gas. It was his servant, or rather the joint servant of two or three of the bachelors, who lived in the house, a huge smooth-faced colored man. Oh, excuseth me, Mr. Harrington, I thought you without there. There's two of them notes for you. John roused himself and took the letters without a word. They were both addressed in a feminine handwriting, the one he knew, for it was from Mrs. Wyndham. The other he did not recognize. He opened Mrs. Wyndham's first. Dear Mr. Harrington, Sam and I are very much put out about it, and sympathize most cordially. We think you might like to come and dine this evening, if you have no other invitation. So I write to say we will be all alone and very glad to see you. Cordially yours, Jane Wyndham. P.S. Don't trouble about the answer. John read the note through and laid it on the table. Then he turned the other missive over in his fingers and finally tore open the envelope. It ran as follows. My dear Mr. Harrington, please don't be surprised at my writing to you in this way. I was at Mrs. Wyndham's this afternoon and heard all about it. 
and I must write to tell you that I am very, very sorry. It is too horrible to think how bad and wicked and foolish people are, and how they invariably do the wrong thing. I cannot tell you how sorry we all are, because it is just such men as you who are most needed nowadays. Though, of course, I know nothing about politics here, but I am quite sure that all of them will live to regret it, and that you will win in the end. Don't think it foolish of me to write, because I am so angry that I can't in the least help it, and I think everybody ought to. Yours in sincerity, Josephine Thorne End of chapter 16